Hello and welcome to the Wadfo... <laughs> this is why I don't do it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Warfighter Training and Simulation Podcast with myself, Colin Hillier and Tom Constable. Hello, hello. Tom, what have you been up to? Well, I'm recovering from man, man flu again. This will be a reoccurring theme throughout the whole podcast. But other than that, not a lot. It's starting to wind down for Christmas. And yeah, only other thing to report my side, two things really. Uh, Starlink has gone down, but the broken again. arrow and all that good. Yeah, no, I'm trying to replace a cable that I think is broken, but I don't know. And it's taken them three weeks to send out a new one. And the other, on the plus side, I think the constant growth of the podcast is definitely buoying me up during this kind of wet, windy period. Uh, nice to see kind of downloads and listens going into the thousands now and continuing to grow with different countries. Uh, shout out to, I think I think these are countries are new. We've got Bulgaria, Sri Lanka, Northern Macedonia. Is that a good thing? That's good. Hello, if you are from there, nice to have you on board. And the growth of the LinkedIn page, which is nice to see. Almost up to 500 followers there. So yeah. I think there's been some useful comments on some of our episodes which is great to see keep that coming i think as we release some of the future episodes are very interesting much more international flavor even more than we've been doing so mm-hmm. i'll look forward to seeing that grow the messages do spread the word do pass it on yeah and that's it you know people have been as we've been out and about meeting people and talking about the podcast they say that how can we support you know how do we make sure this continues to grow and it's just really simple just like share or even comment and comments actually quite crucial as well just for the linkedin algorithm to, to ensure that it continues to permeate through rest of the networks if you can or you want to please do that you always live and die by the algorithm don't you which is this tragic thing to think about this time of year (laughs) (laughs) but on that subject the reason we can do this and the reason we have such great flexibility and freedom is really because of our very generous sponsors so quick merry christmas and happy new year to our sponsors both on the education side and the main side really do appreciate it and i think there'll be some more features for that in the new year yeah thank you improbable defense so let's move on to the main effort for today which is our chat with nato that's how you know we're going up in the world our guest this week is robert siegfried chair of nato's modeling and simulation group which is a great guy to go i really appreciate that he's taking the time and he's going to really shine a light certainly for me on the concept of multi-domain operations the complexities involved in that and how really simulation is going to be key to the success of multi-domain operations going forward but also for the training of the multi-domain operations so welcome robert hey welcome thanks for joining us on this episode i suspect many of our listeners would have heard of nato but could you start just by giving us a quick overview of the main roles that nato play in modeling and simulation absolutely so you know nato is the the western alliance it's a political organization essentially bringing together nations to engage on um, collective uh, defense and deterrence. And uh, one of the topic areas that that NATO is uh, very engaged in is modeling and simulation. I mean, to understand what NATO does in modeling and simulation, it really helps to understand how NATO is operating in general. The basic idea that NATO is built around is the idea of pooling and sharing. So as I said before, NATO is an alliance. Most of the resources that the NATO organization as a whole is kind of operating or is bringing to bear on on a specific topic are provided by the nations. So it's about pooling national resources, uh, pooling resources from the member nations, and also about sharing these resources between all of the allies. So this idea of pooling and sharing is is really the DNA of NATO. And that's also true for modeling and simulation. So it's all about bringing together the nations, pooling and sharing knowledge, and um, expanding the individual knowledge base so that the nations collectively 
can make better decisions, can align their decisions and can collaborate also on uh, modeling and simulation topics. Sure. And that would make total sense. Just before we get into that, could you just give us a quick overview of your background and how did you get involved in this and your role at the moment? Uh, of course. <laughs> so yeah, my name is Robert Siegfried, as, as you just said. Actually, I have two roles. Uh, one is uh, sort of my, in my day job. I'm working as the CEO of, of Aditurna. It's a small uh, Munich-based uh, company supporting uh, the German MOD, various uh, European partners and, and also uh, US and overseas partners. So that's sort of uh, one of the roles. But today, I mean, we're talking about NATO. So in my my second life, let's put it this way, I'm working a lot with NATO. I'm currently serving as the chairman of the NATO Modeling and Simulation Group. And um, this NATO Modeling and Simulation Group, the NMSG, is where all the nations really come together uh, to, to discuss all topics uh, related to modeling and simulation. My engagement in this group started, well, 15 years ago, I guess, in some technical activities. And then, well, as it happens, I worked my way up and uh, ended up being chair for now almost three years. That's your prize for the uh, hard labor, is it? Ah, it's well, it, it, it might be hard labor, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it's a great community. It's an awesome group of people, and I love doing this job. Great. So one of the areas that I think is, is very topical at the moment is something called multi-domain operations. Can you just give us a bit of a breakdown of what that actually means? So multi-domain operations, yeah, that's the new buzzword around. We all know about the three traditional domains, air, land, and sea. Uh, that's kind of the traditional domains of warfare. For a couple of years, uh, they have now been extended. We also include space as a domain and also the cyberspace as one of the domains. Uh, multi-domain operations really means that we don't go to war just employing assets in a single domain. It's not just sufficient, for example, to send a um, fighter aircraft. Uh, we'll always engage in conflicts and, and operations in a multi-domain fashion. So what this means is that air and ground assets have to work together, that cyber, space and maritime assets need to be integrated into a coherent um, operations approach, and that all of these domains need to share information. Air units need to talk to ground or naval units, that they all have to be aware of what is happening in cyber and in space. So really, that's multi-domain operations. It's integration of assets from all domains in a single mission. And I guess it's also bringing a coordinated effect, whatever that effect needs to be. So not just doing one thing after another, but having it all occur sequenced or in, in, a, in a set time. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, whether it's um, taking out a specific target or achieving, as you said, specific effects, there are multiple ways how we can achieve this effect. And it's not always uh, the, the kinetic portion that, that might be the best option. There might also be cyber options. Also, when we talk about contested, congested environments, space plays a critical role. So yeah, all these domains need to be considered in parallel. It's not like one or the other. It's always one and the other. Yeah, and I guess that's what's changed from what we used to call jointry, but the maritime, land and air. Well, I guess now we consider the space and the cyber domain almost in the same mindset, same piece of planning. And talking about uh, multi-domain operations or MDO, it's not only about offensive MDO and delivering effect. It's also the other way around. I mean, we have to defend all domains. It's not just sufficient to protect our fighters or our air bases or camps. We also need to protect our space assets. We need to protect our cyber environments and everything. So multi-domain also refers to the defense of all domains in an integrated fashion. I mean, that's a great sort of introduction. So thank you for that. I guess where to start, but modeling and simulation is one area, but that also extends to the live environment maybe we start about live training how does NATO get involved in this context okay we, we need to 
<laughs> but to break this down a bit, a bit well, further. yeah, break this down a bit. Be precise about what specifically we talk about. So NATO obviously is doing a lot of life training. NATO as a whole, we do have the huge exercises that we all know about to certify battle groups, to test and exercise our standing maritime groups and all the other NATO forces that we have. So these are life exercises that NATO as such is organizing and, and executing. If we specifically look at the modeling and simulation domain and the NATO modeling and simulation group, there are a lot of activities also that we at the NATO modeling and simulation group support in terms of life training. For example, a lot of army units use instrumented ranges, instrumented weaponry on their ranges to conduct life training. That's usually what you have with these laser designators that you put on a tank or on a rifle. And so you can kind of shoot on the on the other units without actually having to fire a bullet and, and you can sort of do the life training. So that is sort of simulation and life training at the same time. To those, the uninitiated, it's a bit like a professional level of laser tag, effectively. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. It's like laser tag for soldiers. How does uh, NMSG get involved in that integration? What are the sort of uh, things that you do to help that interoperability between nations in the live domain then? Traditionally, yeah, we had a variety of vendors providing this live training equipment, this laser equipment, essentially, that you can put on your tanks and rifles and use to instrument your ranges. And um, as it happens, Every vendor had his own standards, did it a little bit differently. I mean, they all had sort of the same idea, but they used different laser code. They used a different encoding to transport some information over the laser shots. What that would mean is that, for example, if you have a, a Dutch brigade coming to Germany to our, our live training ranges to train with us, that would just simply be not possible because the, the systems wouldn't understand each other. So the first action would be to kind of rip off all the um, Dutch instrumented equipment and replace it by some German equipment, and then they could train together. So that's a very ineffective and inefficient way of training. So we had a, within the NMSG, a long-running activity, which is called UCAT. It was an acronym at the beginning, but now it's sort of becoming a name. So the UCAT group, they set out to standardize the laser codes and actually standardize the information that we want to exchange over this uh, laser equipment. What that means, effectively, at the end of the day, we can train together each nation using equipment from their preferred vendors. As long as they all comply with the UCAT standards, we can just go and train together. So there's no need to replace equipment. There's no need for um, cost-intensive adaptations or, or uh, modifications to, to individual systems. But all nations following the same standard can train together. I guess like most of these good ideas, it seems straightforward, but actually when you get to the detail, it, it's a bit fiendish because, you know, there's quite a lot of legacy equipment out there and how do you upgrade that and keeping all these things in lockstep, I guess. What, what are the main challenges you see to that? Well, it boils down to, to two major areas, I would say. I mean, one is a technical piece uh, that, that you already mentioned. These are complicated standards. Uh, there's a lot of information that we want to transmit from one player to another. And so harmonizing uh, different systems and coming up with a common standard just takes time from a technical point of view. Obviously, each implementation had its own benefits. So it's trying to merge all the benefits and, and getting rid of all the um, not-so-good pieces of the individual implementations. So that's a technical piece. That's something that takes time and engineers, but that's something that can be solved. The other part, of course, is there are commercial sensitivities. Usually, if you have a proprietary systems, that also gives some advantages to some vendors. So there's also this piece of educating both industry and government stakeholders that just because we have a common standard, 
we're not taking away business from anyone. Essentially, we're making it easier. The MODs can select from a broader range of vendors and the vendors potentially have access to a broader market because they, they can provide the system to all the MODs. Again, th that requires a, a bit of education and convincing on, on all sides, especially if you have new standards, uh, they need to be tried. MODs would like to have a mature and, and tested standards. Uh, so again, this is what takes time to um, A, develop uh, these standards and, and B, to, to really fully establish them. Yeah, really interesting and really deep topic, which we might need to cover in another session. I guess the main area of interest for us is the evolving technologies and approaches for distributed synthetic training and specifically synthetic training in multi-domain operations. Could you give us a bit of an overview of how you see that panning out over the next few years and what are the challenges associated with that? Absolutely. I mean, we talked about multi-domain operations earlier and we see that integrating all these domains is challenging already in the real life. I mean, we need to bring together air, maritime land, cyber, space and all, all the other pieces to the puzzle. And the key point here is we also want to train multi-domain operations. So also we need to create a training environment that allows our forces to properly train and exercise uh, multi-domain operations. And so there are a number of difficulties popping up if you want to train multi-domain operations in a real, in a live environment using your actual platforms, your ships, your tanks, your, your fighter aircraft and whatnot. There's a variety of reasons why we cannot fully train multi-domain operations in a live environment. There's the availability of assets. Most of our nations in NATO simply cannot afford enough platforms, enough assets to create these complex environments because, I mean, you don't need it like a single platform. You need not a handful or a dozen. You, you need a 50, hundreds of platforms um, to really create a challenging environment for multi-domain operations and also to provide a training stimulus that really challenges your training audience. So it's already a challenge in terms of availability of assets. But then, of course, there are also a lot of concerns about operational safety. I mean, if you do it in a live environment, uh, literally everybody is watching and observing. There are no secrets. You don't want to expose everything uh, to everybody. There are environmental issues, of course. So there's a variety of reasons why we are not able to fully train for multi-domain operations in a live environment. And this is where synthetic environments or, or simulation environments uh, really have their strengths. We can replicate the multi-domain environment in a synthetic environment, not only for ground units, but for ground units, aerial units, and for all the other domains. And we can connect them to each other so that they can really train in, in a live like environment as realistic as possible and that they can train the collaboration between the units from different domains between units from different nations even in a secure and safe space and really have the opportunity to fully train multi-domain operations so long story short synthetic environments are our only way to fully train our troops and, and to prepare them for the next mission because we simply cannot train multi-domain operations in, in a live environment so how does the mnmsg work in terms of improving that you know you talked about standards so clearly standards is part of that work well, to understand how the NMSG is supporting this challenge, let me briefly tell you how the NMSG is operating. The NATO Modeling and Simulation Group is composed of all the allies plus partner nations that are coming together to exchange their priorities on, as I said earlier, all topics related to modeling and simulation, to align research efforts, to undertake joint endeavors, and also to collaborate on standards development. And if you think of the NATO Modeling and Simulation Group as sort of a steering committee that meets twice a year, then under this NMSG, we have a, a C series of technical working groups. At any point in time, there are about 30 different technical working groups that address specific topics. I mean, th there are working groups on, as we talked earlier, life training standards. There are working groups on uh, maritime training, simulation for acquisition, representing cyber effects in simulation environments, professional MS education, and so on and so on. 
So there's a variety of topics that the NMSG is collectively working on. And in total, that's about 500 to 600 subject matter experts that we bring together in these technical working groups. So that's pretty impressive. And that's a pretty good manpower that we have to address these topics. As multi-domain operations are a complex concept involving a lot of different players, it's not a surprise that also when the NMSG is addressing multi-domain operations and synthetic environments for multi-domain operations, that there is a variety of our technical activities kind of involved in this challenge. So over the last years, the NMSG had working groups to look at, for example, how can we connect flight simulators? How can we organize collective synthetic training for maritime units? How can we establish cross-domain security solutions? We had a huge activity and we still have on modeling and simulation as a service, as sort of a cross-cutting technology to enable automation and to bring simulation to the point of need. So there are a lot of technical activities that, that kind of provide bits and pieces of the entire puzzle. About 18 months ago, the NMSG established a new high-level activity, which is called Distributed Synthetic Training, DST. And this activity really brings together all the individual research efforts that we've done over the last 10 years that resulted in many, many standards, trials, exercises, etc. And that brings together all these different work streams under one task group, Distributed Synthetic Training, to really move this forward with the objective to establish a persistent training capability, distributed training capability, where all nations can kind of plug in and train for multi-domain operations as we just discussed. We hear a lot about use of commercial off-the-shelf technology and influences from the gaming industry. Is, is that a particular area of interest for an MSG and how does that relate to some of the sort of more established standards that are implemented? Yeah, so commercial technologies, uh, whether it's uh, from the gaming industry or, or from cloud computing, are of huge interest for the NMSG and, and for MODs around the globe. And the reason is pretty simple. The large tech companies, the Amazons, Microsoft, Googles, and, and so on, Facebooks, they can spend tons of money more on research and development than the MODs can individually. So where in the past, the MODs were sort of driving technology and advancing technology to the edge, that role has changed a little bit. So there are areas where the MODs are no longer at the forefront, but where commercial industries are leading and simply they can spend a lot more money. And so the approach is that we adopt as much as we can from these commercial developments. And again, a great example is cloud computing, which is well established in the commercial sector, which the MODs have picked up, and uh, where we try to leverage uh, certain cloud technologies, for example, for modeling and simulation as a service. Gaming, great example. There's uh, tons of money available in the gaming industry, and they have built great engines, for example, which we can use as image generators in um, full mission simulators, for example. So there's a huge appetite to benefit from commercial developments and, and to adapt those commercial developments developments for defense use. Yeah, as you say, there's some really good examples out there. But I guess while there are similarities, there's also lots of differences when you're trying to deliver simulation or modeling for training, as opposed to simulation for entertainment, for example. Can you break that down in terms of sort of the differences and why some of the commercial techniques that might be present in the gaming industry don't work or do work in the military world? Uh, that's a great point, actually. The objective is simply different. If I want to create a blockbuster game, it's about getting the player entertained. It should be challenging, but not too difficult and so on. Uh, the graphics need to be really good. And um, if you take a state-of-the-art game, let's say Call of Duty, which has a budget of roughly 1.5 billion uh, euro, about 80% or so, maybe 90% go into developing graphics, make it look nice, photorealistic imagery, high-res terrain, and, uh, and all these 
other elements. And the huge difference, as you just started to point out, I mean, the huge difference to training is that if we provide training to our soldiers and our warfighters, it is about a realistic representation of the real world. So it's not about entertaining, but it's about a realistic representation. So there are some elements that might be harder than in a game. There are some elements that might just simply be, be different uh, so that we replicate the real environment. But that's the main difference. We need to make sure that they get a training value and that the training that they get from our training systems is something that they can employ in the real world. That's a major difference uh, between games and, and our training environments. And the other piece, of course, is uh, usually the second question is then why do our training uh, systems not, not look like Call of Duty, for example? And again, I mean, the reason is pretty simple because if you look at Call of Duty, they are selling millions of copies. And uh, if you have a development cost of 1.5 billion or so and you divide it by millions of copies, that's a very feasible approach. But if you buy like 10 or 15 simulators and want to have the same degree of photorealistic imagery and terrain and, and so on, it's simply not affordable. So that's usually the reason why our training systems are not as high realistic as, as some of the um, AAA games. That probably feeds back to your earlier point about improved standards then mean less duplication and we can make the graphics better. We can get the scale up, pull across all these technologies. As you say, uh, the cost of developing a game is actually, I think, more than most Hollywood movies these days for a high-end game. Yeah, the budgets are very different. If, if we only had some of those budgets, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. So where do you see MNSG going in the next few years? What are the main areas of thought and importance? There are probably um, two answers to this question. One is obviously from, from a technology point of view. There are a lot of great ideas floating around from a research point, areas that we would like to address. And the other point, of course, is sort of more in day-to-day -day challenges. NATO, I said it at the beginning, is, is a political organization. And the war in Ukraine obviously affected NATO. There's a lot of re-emphasis on collective defense, for example, in NATO since February this year. And... Um, this also comes down to the NATO modeling and simulation group. So, so essentially, um, the NMSG was also asked, how can we support collective deterrence and defense? How can we actively contribute to um, prepare our nations well, for potential war in Europe that was unthinkable a few months ago. So um, that said, we are trying to find a balance in the NATO modeling and simulation group between uh, short-term activities where we can provide results pretty quickly and also where we can provide results that nations can use more or less directly. So kind of satisfying immediate needs, delivering something that is usable today. And at the same time, finding a balance at the same time, also looking at, at medium to longer term research topics that might not be usable today or tomorrow, but that are the basis for the next generation or the generation after next of our systems. Personally, I think it's very important that we have this balance and that we do not only focus on short-term activities or not only on long-term, but that we address both at the same time. And that's what we try to do in the NMSG. There are a lot of activities that focus on, on short-term uh, where we provide results that nations can directly use, uh, whether it's um, professional education uh, curriculums, uh, the UCAT, uh, the life training standards, for example. We do have excellent examples in developing data models for representing uh, cyber effects, for example, in distributed training environments. So these are all kind of efforts uh, that contribute to kind of short-term results and, and short-term effects. Medium to long-term, uh, there are great topics, whether it's representation of human behavior in our systems, integration of cultural and, and other aspects in, into this uh, human behavior, for example. There are a lot of topics that are open in the broad field of artificial intelligence. I mean, at the end of the day, AI works a lot with models. And, and so by definition, the NATO modeling and simulation group is interested in these models and how can we train artificial intelligence models? How can we verify them? How can we validate that they do what they are supposed to do? Uh, how can we establish uh, quality metrics and so on in this area? So there are a lot of areas of interest that, that require a, a bit more medium to long-term 
efforts to make good progress. So my question is, with MDOs and synthetic training or the synthetic training environment required to train for multi-domain operations, am I right in saying there's no one single bit of software where you can train MDO? So you've had to bring together multiple softwares together using your open standards? Uh, that's perfectly correct. So the idea that we are pursuing as Native Modeling and Simulation Group uh, with the distributed synthetic training efforts is to provide an opportunity for nations to plug in the national training systems into a, let's say, joint backbone. It's a bit like Steam for the MODs um, hmm. or Xbox network. You start up your national training system, whether it's an infantry system, uh, air traffic controller, JFIC, whatever, and you can plug it in, in into this common environment and you can train with units from a different service, from a different domain, from a different nation. And once you're done, you kind of unplug and the next training audience can kind of plug in their training systems. It requires a, a set of national or, or training systems that we can then pull together. There's no single system satisfying all MDO training demands. That's a great concept. Where are you in the journey of making that a reality? As I said, we started about 18 months ago. Well, in reality, we started about 10 years ago at developing <laughs> the initial standards, uh, validating, verifying these standards, getting them published, uh, getting them balloted and so on, and uh, getting also vendors to implement some of these standards already. Where we are now with distributed synthetic training is that we've brought together the, the community. It's a group of 20 nations and something like 170 or so subject matter experts. And the challenge right now is to kind of transition from great initial results into a standing, into a persistent capability that nations can use on a daily basis. So it's a bit like in most nations, the transition from, yeah, we have a great research result into fielding a capability. And sometimes in, in many nations, there's this valley of death in between. And that's exactly where we are and what we are trying to bridge at the moment. I do think we have a great opportunity now. Unfortunately, due to the Ukraine war, that opened up a lot of um, opportunities, as we all know, a lot more funding going into NATO. There's a lot more um, understanding for the need to be able to train uh, multinationally and to train for multi-domain operations. There's also a new understanding that we are lacking uh, this training capability, this critical training capability. So I think we are we at a really good point. Uh, we have a lot of support from our higher commands, uh, from the NATO headquarters, from the NATO single service commands, and from, as I said, from 18 uh, nations that are currently participating and should soon be two or three more. So yeah, I think we have a great opportunity to establish this uh, distributed synthetic training capability over the next years. Robert, that's really great overview of the work that's been done by NMSG. Probably the last question for me is, this is a really interesting area and I know NATO likes to sort of maintain a sort of high level sort of forward looking view and stay away from buzzwords. But how do you see the, this work relating to conversations around things like military metaverse? Is that relevant? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for the question. Now, if somebody can explain to me what the military metaverse is, I'm happy <laughs> to answer. Well, there we go. We'll have to have someone. I mean, in reality, I think if, if we um, succeed with establishing the distributed synthetic training capability, we are kind of close to a let's say, training metaverse. If you look around it at the big trade shows like ITSEC a few weeks ago, you see that there is a lot of individual technologies that you would imagine would play a role in establishing something like a military metaverse. I think that the, the big question for me still is, will this all be integrated? Will this be like a, a second life for the military? Or will this be more like individual technologies that we kind of pull together on a case-by-case -case basis? It's probably worth pointing out that a lot of this work isn't new. I seem to remember NATO looking at this 15 years ago that what what's different is that the technologies have moved on and some of what was probably a dream 15 years ago is now just more readily achievable yes technology is, is advancing that there are elements that are possible today
today, if you just think about collaboration tools, uh, video conferencing, all these that were not able, well, maybe 10 years ago. Also, um, of course, our infrastructure has evolved, uh, the networking capabilities, the radio networks, all that has evolved to a point where we can make data more readily accessible uh, to a broad user base. Uh, so, so definitely these enabling factors, I think, play a critical role. It's just a personal theory, but just as as the internet came out of a, a military project from DARPA, I wonder if we'll see the first true metaverse coming out of some of this defense work. Crystal ball. I, like- would, be, I would be cautious. I mean, what I said earlier, the commercial sector has, has way more money available for research and development than we in the MODs have. If you just look at, at the amount of money that, for example, Facebook is spending about $10 billion a year on establishing the metaverse, they are also working on the... Um, on the goggles and on other pieces. My bet would be that the commercial sector is leading and that the MODs, the defense is adapting at what we feel we can leverage for our purposes. Mm. Well, great. Robert, I think we'll close it there. It's been great. Yeah, Robert, thanks again for appearing on, on this episode. A really helpful guide to the work that NATO is doing. And they can get in touch with you if they want to learn more on the Warfighter podcast page. Colin, Tom, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to, to be part of your podcast. That was great. Always fascinating what you don't know that NATO do yeah. all the time that goes on in the background. Yeah, naively. just I knew that NATO had a modeling simulation group, but I hadn't had anything really to do with it until now. So understanding how they're structured and actually they're looking at some of the big problems, I think it's a great opportunity to be able to reach out to people within part of that team, share knowledge, and hopefully we can get a few of those guests on to explore some of these topics in a lot more detail. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning that it's not at all a closed shop. They they sort of encourage industry and academia to get involved. So there are ways to do so. People like Robert can um, definitely point you in the right direction if that's of interest. Moving on now to the new segment. A little bit longer than usual, but really good content. And I hope you enjoy. Here we go. This is the highlight of my bi-weekly event. Andy, as ever, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. So you guys have been having a little bit of a chin wag in the background and kind of revamping this based on kind of feedback and thoughts from other people as well. So so someone tell me, what are we covering and, and how, how are we going to cover it this week? Well, obviously, end of the year. So you can't get away from the, what, <laughs> let's have a throwback. Let's look at what sort of the main themes or stories of the year. So Andy and I sort of discussing what sort of caught our eye. And basically, Andy came up with three main areas. So I think we'll go through them in no particular order. I think the first story, Andy, you want to talk about? That's right. Right, Colin. So in a sense, it's an ongoing story, but it's the issue of the US Army's Integrated Visual Augmentation System, or IVAS. Ah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Okay, (laughs) rolling up my sleeves. Yeah, well, we've left the best till last for you. (laughs) Uh, I guess a lot of our listeners would instantly know what it is, but I'll read out what the Programme Executive Officer Soldier says. It's the US Army procurement wing. They say it provides a single platform that allows the soldier to fight, rehearse and train. So, yeah, it's very much multi-purpose. And the reason I guess it's of particular interest to our community is that it does leverage off mixed reality technology from Microsoft, in particular their HoloLens technology, which I hope you've all heard of. Back to the PO website, it says it will enable warfighters to fight 25 bloodless battles before engaging the enemy and then of course it'll be used actually to fight the enemy as well yeah is it worth describing what it looks like because i've got a picture in front of me now i've kind of quickly googled it would it be because some people may not actually have an idea what the the product looks like well the hololens is obviously a microsoft product it's now in its second iteration hololens 10 2 and that is a sort of flip down visor the military need 
something a bit more robust and rugged. So I would say it looks like a bit like ski goggles. Yeah, it, it does. It's a helmet-mounted yeah. mixed reality display, but for, for yeah. infantry. And just to add more detail, like that, so it's a ski goggle, and on top of the ski goggles, there are multiple different sensors and cameras. And then fixed onto that, it is fixed onto a normal kind of combat ballistic helmet. The soldier would normally see the real world, and then they can have, in terms of in front of them, have images of or symbology showing maybe where the enemy is or where their troops are or give them situational awareness through just seeing through these goggles so they can see the real world also it has a sort of infrared capability as well so it could provide you infrared vision as well which is extremely uh, valuable if every soldier could have that Andy what's interesting with this is it's not a new idea I mean the sort of digital soldiers has been around for a while certainly since I've been working in this area what's new is this type of technology and the application to it and the money associated with it the vision of actually this technology I can see it people in factories are using this technology and so it isn't just science fiction, it's something where people tangibly see. So, you know, maybe the technology is ready and that's what they're exploring. But of course, it's had bad press along the way and it's easy for people to snipe. I wonder whether people are sniping at the whole idea of having it or just the fact that it's something new. So it is, its main purpose is to provide that 24-7 situation awareness, which can be used in training and in operation. It's quite a bold bit of technology for sure. In March 21, they were uh, Microsoft were awarded a contract with rather extraordinary numbers, really, to produce 120,000 of these goggles. Uh, and a contract is worth up to 22 billion. Huge sums of money. That's uh, public domain information. Of course, all of this is. You only need to do a trawl through Google News to see some of the problems. Earlier this year, in April 2022, the Inspector General of the Department of Defence audited this system. And I think it's interesting. They were auditing how, principally, how did the army know what it was going to get? Was it value for money? So they recognise that the army is using user acceptance as a core metric for the project. But this government audit was actually quite critical. I mean, they lauded that. But the trouble was that they weren't defining minimum user acceptance levels to whether IVAS would meet the needs. And quote, procuring IVAS without obtaining a user acceptance could result in wasting up to $22 billion in taxpayers' funds. And in fact, not just for IVAS, and I think this should be listed of interest to all listeners, they're recommending in terms of procurement that suitable user acceptance measurements for test and evaluation should always be there. And I think anyone who's in the military or involved with the military, you know, the user acceptance um, is, is absolutely essential. So um, fast forward now until November, the army is looking to renegotiate the contract because since that audit, there were more tests and users are experiencing physical ailments they don't define what those are. Uh, that's according to Jane's recent article. The ones that research I've done is, is yes, yeah, around kind of nausea, motion sickness and nausea. Yeah, it's far more challenging than VR, this virtual reality, because, yeah, you the helmet needs to know exactly where it is and all those visual artifacts need to be, you know, bang on, obviously. Mm-hmm. So actually quite challenging. According to Jane's, the Assistant Secretary of the US Army for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology, a gentleman of Douglas Bush, He still wants to fill 10,000 of these units, but the plan does depend on the new form factor. But I I think this is really interesting. Bush is quoted as saying, we ran into a challenge which is not uncommon, which is you have commercial technology that's very good in commercial setting, but adapting it to military use and conditions is sometimes much harder than people think it's going to be. And they went on, nobody gaming in their basement worries about light emissions. 
and nobody wears it for three hours uh, very often. <laughs> so the risks of discomfort are different. Yeah. Um, and after all, it's not the first procurement project to run into difficulties. <laughs> so I think every defence, whether you're producing a tank or an aircraft, runs into difficulties. Yeah, it's a story to watch that one and we will be doing through next year. Look forward to hearing more about that. Maybe we can get someone from Microsoft to talk about that some more. Yeah, I really want to get someone on to talk about it. I mean, just from my perspective, because again, it's a topic I've been wanting to discuss for a while on the podcast is... From the start of this contract and the concept, I always, as, a, as an, as an ex-infantry myself, you know, the idea of putting more technology onto soldiers and troops who already have lots of things to think about and worry about, it always concerns me. It's not about being scared of new technology. I'm, I'm all for new technology. You guys know that. But it's just like troops need to be aware of you know, ground awareness, what's happening around them, what's that sound they can hear in the distance, where are all their comrades in, in real time? And yeah, okay, this headset is meant to overlay blue four positions. But then what's the risk with too much information? What's the risk of technology going down, losing signal, knocking the head, breaking the camera? Then you've lost your situational awareness that you've now relied upon. And actually, are you a worse infantier because you've been relying upon the crutch of all of this technology? And then when it all goes peak tongue, what do you have to rely on? Well, actually, you have to rely on your natural instincts as an infantier anyway. So that's, but I love people from Microsoft to come on and chat to it because I'm obviously, I've not been part of the trials. I haven't been developing it. There's clear use case. It's very exciting conceptually, but the practical application is where my question marks kind of are raised. And maybe they're going down the wrong use case. Maybe it'd be more useful for people fixing tanks more in yeah. the uh, uh, rather than someone absolutely in the front line so maybe the use case is, uh, is something they need to look at yeah huge topic so we'll certainly cover that in future the other not insignificant topic andy is the sort of real emergence of gaming platforms in a large way do you want to give us a bit of an update of what's been happening this year i've been exploring or looking at the gaming technology in a wider sense for i'm afraid two decades now and it's always interested me about how people respond to it certainly 20 years ago even though senior people uh, military many in the military and even nato were keen to pursue gaming technology in terms of you know what could it do for the warfighter there was huge skepticism in many parts of industry i will say and you know downright you know dismissive i would say i think a rather in Afghanistan with the likes of VBS2 brought along the idea, yeah, you can give this software to users, empower the military, but still it was an uphill struggle. Still people rather scoff or, or not take it seriously, even though over the last decade, the gaming ecosystem has grown hugely and it's incredibly sophisticated now. Two years ago at ITSEC, it was a virtual ITSEC, Alan Schaefer, who was then the Deputy Under Secretary of Defence, was still asking his audience at ITSEC to said it must adapt to considerably large, uh, larger gaming industry. And I remember writing an article and thinking, employ, why does he still have to say that? It's just extraordinary, isn't it? That the industry or the community is still quite negative. The breakthrough this year, which I do remember... I was just about to come to that, Colin. Yeah, the, you know, certainly... The... <laughs> you tell him, Andy. Sorry, sorry no, stolen your thunder. <laughs> Because I remember saying to someone, probably you, Andy, about five years ago, saying, when we see the flight simulation people using game engines, then we'll have broken the last barrier. Is that something we've seen that this year? Well, I think no doubt there are still sceptics. But I I think this year we've seen companies like CAE, who are obviously huge, not just in military, but in civil aviation, their 
have been partnering with Epic Games to use Unreal Engine all the way, in a sense, from a mobile device all the way now to a full flight simulator. That, to me, is a sort of just a huge change in attitude, although CAE have spoken to me in the past that, well, we've been using gaming graphics cards for years, so it was just, this is a progression. And also, we've now also seen Unity in, in flight simulators, I think, at ITSEC. So, yeah, I think that is a huge story for the community, but it has taken an awful long time <laughs> to reach that point. And it's very exciting. I think, you know, the idea that users can now work with software that they probably see at home. There's huge communities of people working on these platforms. So it's yeah. difficult to know where it's going to go. But it, having followed the journey, very exciting. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we're going to see more of that. Yeah, I mean, I've been banging the drum for over three years now about using gaming engines. And every time I presented to the customer, so defense, militaries around the world, despite talking about my product and what we did, one of the things I tried to communicate was the value of game engines. And it not just my product, but just talking about why defense could benefit from it. You know, why invest a lot of money in a proprietary platform when you can invest money in someone else who's built on a game engine that can benefit from essentially the investment from the much larger gaming industry that will get the money gets made in the gaming industry, gets pumped back into the game engines, Unreal Engine, Unity, etc. And then Unity and Unreal Engine continue to improve their platforms because they need to be at the cutting edge. Otherwise, no one's going to use their platforms to build games or simulators on. And then defense companies build on top of that and benefit from all the investment throughout the whole chain. It's a no-brainer for pretty much everyone throughout the chain. Yeah, so I'm glad that three years later, I'm not suggesting that I was involved in any of those changes, but glad to see it starting to happen now. And the floodgates really do look like they're starting to open. The only thing I'll add to that, maybe to your point, is when you ask these companies why they're involved in defense and government, is their motivation? And their motivation is because it's the most challenging use case, a bit like IVAS. It's the most challenging use case, and that's why they're interested in doing it. And I think that's a good response. If it was oh, for, the, for the money or prestige or something, I'd be, well, that's not a great reason. But if they're looking that it would develop their technology, then that's a great sort of symbiosis, I think. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Colin. Perhaps even bigger markets in engineering or architecture to exploit these engines as well, which perhaps neatly brings us to the other story of the year. Another one that we probably couldn't couldn't get away from. The metaverse. (laughs) Uh, I hear hear groans and hoops of excitement. I think this is important because, not because I've just written two articles about it, (laughs) but I, I I think if you're really interested in this space, I think it brings together many concepts that the military have had since the 1980s and perhaps before. Whether you want to call it the metaverse or not, if you look at a lot of the underlying technologies like games engine, they are happening. And so you can't kind of get away from it. Obviously, Facebook turning to meta, there's sort of that has been cause for people to sort of snipe at the metaverse. I think companies like Improbable, recent news of, of some difficulties in, in America might be another a negative thing against the metaverse. But if you try and get beyond all these points, I think it's really exciting because in a way, the whole world is waking up, to, in my mind, to the power of simulation and the impact of the real and digital worlds coming together, which is the whole point of the original book, where the, the title came from. So that should keep on giving into 2023. As I say, I, I have written about and done some work in the metaverse area. And I'm also now just interested in how seeing people respond to it. I find it fascinating how some knee-jerk reaction is to be is to pour cold water on it. I just don't personally understand that. But it's interesting to watch for sure. Yeah, and, and it's a compelling idea. It's compelling because it's not a, not a new concept. No. Uh, some of us might remember the original Tron movie 
and certain science fiction books, which were all about basically living in this sort of parallel world that's digitally created, even to a point you don't really know you're in the parallel world. So I don't think we'll see it ever go away. It's always going to be an objective, but it might be called different things and it might evolve. It's certainly 2022 was the probably the year of the metaverse, and it'd be fascinating to see how that evolves and does that become a reality or does it sort of yeah, I, I, take I, slightly into something else? I don't know. In terms of a military metaverse, the use case, I mean, I don't necessarily see people socially spending all their time with virtual worlds, but I can certainly see the use cases for engineering, architecture, training, operations, where the digital world is more three-dimensional. You know, it's impacting on the real world. So in more traditional terms, it's live, virtual, constructed, really. So, Aren't we, you know, we already have live. that? So what, Indeed, this, is what yeah. this is what I struggle with. And maybe, Colin, you're going to look at me and say, look, this is another episode, Tom, stop, don't, this is a news report, let's not jump into it. But it's that's the interesting thing, especially when you talk about military metaverse, we're, we're already training in the synthetic environment. So it's, it's understanding the difference that the concept of the metaverse would bring to defense and, and understanding exploring the values and the detractors that, that might come with that. And, and by the way, if anyone's listening from who is part of the military at the moment, who has that passion for the metaverse and wants to come on and talk about it, I'm re- I'd be really excited to better understand where defense truly sees the concept of this you know, larger synthetic environment kind of sitting. Um, it'd be great. Great to get another view on it. That just leaves me to thank Andy for his input this year and, and a look back. Maybe this could be a whole episode next time. Clearly, there's quite a lot to talk about. And I think we might do a look forward early next year. It leaves me to sort of say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all our listeners. Thank you for subscribing. And, and do do tell your friends um, who are wondering what to do in that dark period between Christmas and New Year. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think you could probably tell we had to cut that a little bit abrupt and short because we were just going to start go down a rabbit warren, I suppose, for all those topics, um, which... Off air, we've decided that basically every single one of those is a separate episode that's going to come out with the podcast and might even try and bring Andy in if he's available just because I think it's nice and fresh to get you know a bit of challenge in the conversation if, if Andy and I disagree or you, Colin. It's nice to have that healthy debate to be able to explore these concepts in more detail. Yes, there's lots of scope for and lots of topics for next year, which will, as you say, we'll definitely be covering some of those in more depth. I know that I came across quite sceptical. I'm not sceptical, but I suppose I just want I want more data. <laughs> I want more data before I'm going to commit to something. You need to be just, I'm not going to fanboy it because it's the cool thing. I want to I go, look, tell me more and please answer the areas of which I still have questions. And hopefully they will when we get the guests on. Right. Uh, that is it for another episode, Colin. Uh, anything else from you, mate? No, just to say many thanks to our listeners. Please spread the word. We're trying to grow a bit more of a community and common understanding, common discussion, discourse, if you like. So, um, yeah, pass it on. Cheers. Cheers.